everybody. This is The Legal Disclaimer, where we tell you that the views, thoughts, and opinions shared on this podcast belong solely to our guests and our hosts, and not necessarily Brady or Brady's affiliates. Please note that this podcast contains discussions of violence that some people may find disturbing. It's okay. We find it disturbing, too. Welcome back to another exciting mini-sode, or at least I think it's exciting, mini-sode of Red Bull and Brady. Now today I'm really excited for all of you to get to meet Dr. Mary Jo Pogursky, who, just a small disclaimer here, I've worked under Dr. Pogursky at the Washington Health System Teen Outreach Program. I was lucky enough to be one of her peer mentors, and it was an experience that has a, had a profound impact on my life. I don't know if I would actually have this job if it weren't for Mary Jo. She's an amazing individual, and she's here to talk to us about the reality that, you know, 91% of the world's student population is out of school right now. So what what does that mean? What does that mean for domestic violence rates? What does that mean for rates of suicide? And what can we do to help teens that are now encountering guns in the home? So on that note, Mary Jo, or, you know, to be formal, Dr. Mary Jo, can you please introduce yourself to our audience? It's interesting. I didn't do my doctorate till I was in my 50s. And I forget sometimes that it's Dr. Mary Jo. But professionally, I get treated that way. The kids just call me Mary Jo. And that's good. That's good for me. So who am I? Um, I started out as a nurse. And that was a long time ago. In 1970, I was a pediatric nurse. And then I was a pediatric oncology nurse. And that changed me. So in 1973, I realized at the age of 23 that I was not immortal. And that has been my foundation all my life. So I bring up that long introduction to say, who am I evolved like all of us. So I became a childbirth educator after I had done a lot of work with death. I wanted to work with birth and that evolved into sexuality education. And that's a a long story, but it's a good one. Um, And now I am certified in sexuality education and in sexuality counseling. I am an Oveus bullying prevention trainer. I'm a darkness to light child sexual abuse facilitator is an authorized person for that program. I do a lot of stuff. You're very busy. (laughs) Thank you. And I've written 35 books, which makes me happy. I like writing very much. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your latest one, the naughty book about quarantine? Right. So I have 10 naughty books. I can take a minute to tell you about them. The first one was naughty talks about gender that I wrote for a very small person who was gender questioning. And it just blossomed. I wrote naughty talks about race after Trayvon Martin's death, I wrote um, Nani Talks About Puberty when I realized we needed one that had some non-binary gender stuff in it. I've done Nani Talks About Birth, Nani Talks About Death, Nani Talks About Trauma. I did that one after Parkland. I just finished Nani Talks About Nani Talks About Disability. Of course, I did Nani Talks About Sex. So I'm in the middle of doing Nani Talks About Relationships, which is a bigger book because I'm looking at every relationship a young person can have, starting with employees even. Uh, moms, dads, different kinds of families, siblings, crushes, the whole gamut. And so it's a, it's a major effort. And I'm doing it with a consulting author who is a dear friend of mine. And so we're working. And this happened. So 10 days ago, I know exactly what it was. 10 days ago, March 31st, I think it was, I wrote to my illustrator who does all my artwork. And I said, can you do me four pictures? She had told me she was done doing books. So... I didn't think she'd do it for me, but she did. And she didn't even charge me for it. And I said, I can work this book around four new pictures. I have so many pictures from you. 
she said, what are you writing? I said, I'm going, Nani talks about quarantine. And I'm going to answer all the questions I'm getting from young people right now. Because I'm Zooming, I'm Zooming with teens twice a day at 3 p.m. and at 7 p.m. every day, even the weekends. And so much is coming out of this. So many things, so much anxiety and anger. My seniors are ready to just implode from anger. So I thought this book needs done. So it took 10 days from conception to birth of this book, which makes me happy because I think it is really needed, desperately needed. Um, I'm gonna release it free of cost uh, through my website as a downloadable PDF. When the crisis is over, I'll, I, will, I will put it on retail. But for now, I think this is an important resource. The whole idea behind the Nani books is that big stuff, tough stuff, parents don't always, number one, know how to address it with kids. And number two, think kids need it. And that's a little sad to me. When I train new people, the first thing I tell, tell them is you have to respect young people and you have to listen to hear. You don't teach them what you think they need, you teach them what they need. And that's powerful to me. So a lot of these topics, death, we don't want to talk about this. Americans don't want to talk about this. We don't want to, it's over there. Death happens to other people, not to us. And so the quarantine piece is so complex. It's so multifaceted. There's all this virus where you can't see a virus. There's all this who's high risk. I can't touch grandma and grandpa. There's, um, I would be fine if I'm 15, but I would be a carrier. So that puts responsibility on me. There's all this political stuff where if you listen, you hear people saying it's not real, it's a hoax. And, and people downplaying it, it's just like the flu. At the other hand, you see people dying. So that brings up what is death and where's my role in death? So the other concern that's deep in me is where are kids going home to? And I think that the sort of intangible nature of it, when we're talking about dealing with COVID-19, is not in many ways dissimilar from the way that a lot of students interact with gun violence, or at the very least, students who are from not impacted areas. Children from marginalized communities deal with gun violence in a much more tangible, everyday way. Yeah. Absolutely. But for a lot of American students who you know, it's more of the fear of the school shooting, which is rare, but obviously gathers that media attention. There's a lot of fear there. And I was wondering, especially since you've written a book after Parkland, you wrote a book after Trayvon Martin's killing. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the effects that gun violence have on young people who I think don't get normally as as much of attention in terms of the trauma that it does. Right. And and if we can, I want to pull this back to to COVID-19 if we can, but let me, let me tell you my motivation for writing Nani Talks About Trauma. When I do these books, I do three focus groups every time, one for three and fourth graders, third and fourth graders, fifth and sixth graders, and then seventh and eighth graders. And wow, do I learn from them. Now, I have a skeleton in the book. I have draft one that I bring to them, but I end up changing dialogue a lot after the kids' input. And then I also have an activity that I do for each book where I, when I teach, when I train, I have cards, you know, I like visual stuff. And I, I, each card is a comment because I ask the children, I record it, but I ask the children or young people to answer certain questions for me. And the trauma one was profound. And one of the questions were, was, how do you feel about guns? And what, some of the older kids, sixth through eighth grade would say things like, well, my dad hunts, my mom hunts, things like that. But that didn't mean they weren't frightened of them. So even in families where guns are part of the culture, 
they were usually given a healthy respect for guns. They were taught how to use them correctly more than a, a family that doesn't have that culture. So there's guns and there's gun violence. And they're two separate things. And so yes. even kids who are comfortable with a shotgun to, to go turkey shooting were afraid of gun violence. So let me also back up when I did the when I did the trauma book focus groups, that was directly after Parkland. It was probably two weeks after. I also did a community thing called Let's Talk. And I trained 23 peer educators to do small group facilitation with adults. Had 120 grown-ups come to this, and my teens did small groups with them about gun violence. And then we had a panel of wonderful people who talked about what we should do about these school shootings. So those are the two two, if you will, sources of my, of my, their wisdom that I happen to be lucky enough to pull upon. After a school shooting, there's an incredible escalation of fear. I have focus group with teachers. They're miserable. I would love to. I talked to my department chair who has just retired at WNJ College, and he and I have talked about finding money to do research into how this is affecting kids emotionally. Because I believe lockdown drills are emotionally traumatizing. I, I really believe, I've had seniors tell me that after the drill, they have nightmares. And their nightmares are so altruistic for the most part. How would I save my teacher? How would I get my best friend out? Would I throw myself on the gunman? In my opinion, kids shouldn't have to think of those things. Now, back up. I was a pediatric oncology nurse in Sloan Kettering in New York City. We had 10, 11 deaths a week. Those children faced death. They didn't have a choice. And even then, we tried to Cushion's not the right word because we were realistic, but ease their emotional pain as well as their physical pain. So that was important, very important. But this is not necessary, in my opinion, to inflict a, an ace on a kid, ace an adverse childhood experience, to put that trauma in a child for no damn reason is appalling to me. And I don't understand why it's a, we as a culture cannot respond to this. It's not about Second Amendment rights. It's about human rights. It's about do we save these children from emotional pain? Sure, the odds of them being in an actual horrible school shooting are less than one might think because what when there's a big blow up when there's a school shooting. But the odds of them being frightened by this, huge. The odds of them thinking that I'm depressed, and that's very common, 20% according to data, but I see more of that, especially now. What I'm seeing now is a lot of anxiety, just free-floating. Oh, wow. Some of my Zoom sessions are group counseling. That's what they are. So if I have a kid who has been indoctrinated in the fact that gun violence happens, they've seen it, sometimes they've lived it, what happens when they get to the point where they're not sure if they want to live? Do they turn to a gun as a means of expressing their suicidal ideation instead of taking a couple of pills out of a, a, they don't have a whole bottle of pills. I take a couple of mom's valley and they don't die from that. It's, it's a problem to me. And, and then the other challenge, and this is what I wanted to bring back to the, to the quarantine or whatever you want to call it that we're involved in. Children are often safe at school. That's their place of refuge. And now they are not in that safe place. Now they're with adults who may or may not provide for them emotionally. They may not provide for them physically, and we know that 90% of sexual abuse takes place with people that the children know. So we are sending children home to danger sometimes. And there's not an easy way to monitor that. What we know about sexual abuse is it's really hard to disclose. And what we know about emotional abuse is it's often blown off. Just a quick anecdote. 
probably 10 years ago, we did some drug and alcohol education. We don't do that anymore. The grant went away. But in the process of doing that, I always have peer educators, as you know, develop their own curricula. And so one of the scenarios they came up with is about driving in a car when the driver, getting into a car when the driver is drunk. And so we're working this through, we're processing this. And one of the boys said, what if the person is drunk as your mom? So I hear over and over that children are, or teens are unhappy with their environment. Maybe it's not as serious as that. Maybe it's the fact that their parent has a new partner and they don't like this partner at all. This partner is, and I'll use a quote from a recent column that I did, this partner is a waste of space, right? And this partner gets in the kid's face and yells about them and looks at their phone and tells them who their friends can be and says, you're a lousy person and why didn't you clean this and that kind of stuff. And the kid could get away from that and go to school. And now it's 24-7. Mixed in with then these added anxieties that, as you're saying, can sometimes manifest into anger Absolutely. With, with this big fear. When I even think back to my biggest fears, one, one of the biggest fears that I had going to college was financial. I constantly had financial worries and stress okay. and was lucky enough to come from a stable home environment, but I was still very worried as a millennial what were going to be the job opportunities? How was I going to pay my bills? Was I going to have a place to live? We're now seeing teenagers, young people, young adults go through that same anxiety on top of, am I going to live? Mm-hmm. And am I in danger? And then to not have a place of respite. Totally. These young people's stress levels are so high. They're so, it's almost palpable when you, when you work with them. I can feel it before they even start talking, maybe because I've done this for so many decades, but there's, there's an aura of, of anxiety that just floats over them and or a sense, if you want to use a different word. I don't want to get too esoteric, but the reality is they're feeling pain. And sadly, I'm not sure what the answer is right now because we, we are homeschooling. And that's also interesting. There's such a disparity in two schools, what they're offering. And uh, it isn't easy Can we talk a little bit about sort of the elder children? So the teens specifically, so teens and domestic violence specifically, what might they be going through, especially in, you know, lower income areas where again, a lot of times, you know, the jobs that teens had in the retail sphere and the restaurant industry that are probably gone now, we're helping to support the family. So that added stress or, you know, we have teen parents that are now at home and and things of that nature. So can we talk a little bit about where these three things intersect? You know, teens, you know, domestic violence and firearms possibly being in in the home or present. They intersect very powerfully, which is yet another thing that makes a person feel, I hate to use the word helpless because it's a strong word, but sometimes I think that's how we feel. Those of us who care deeply about young people and about our culture and about our nation, I can't enact laws and I wish I could. Yeah. If only you could. Yeah. So I've had kids tell me to call the president, which I think is hilarious. You know, I had a, they did that with me when Clinton got in trouble with Monica Lewinsky. I had a boy tell me then, call the president, he needs your class. <laughs> well, this one now, could use some assistance too, I'm sure. Right? But now I'm getting, call the president and tell him how to do a press conference respectfully. I mean, I'm, kids are coming to me with this, which is funny. I don't have that kind of power, but I will tell you that everything I teach, and you know this, predicates on the fact that each person's worthy. Each person should be respected. So if that's the case, look at the intersection of that. Number one, our older young people unequivocally are helping support family. Absolutely. When the bottom falls out of that financially, um, it's not that they don't get to go get pizza. It's that then maybe they worry about utilities being turned off in their home. Yeah. It's younger siblings eating. 
It's big stuff. It's medication. I have a couple of young people who take mental health drugs and don't have insurance of any sort. Family doesn't have, they're that working poor group of people where they don't qualify for assistance, but they don't have an employer who gives insurance and they can't afford insurance. And so I've, I've personally put some money into that, um, $80 a pop sometimes, because these kids can't go off these meds. That's what keeps them. It, taking a child off their mental health medication, we would never take away insulin because we know that the diabetic would probably physically have great distress without insulin. But we've forgotten that mental health is real as a culture. We just stigmatize it. And we have young people who people blow that. Well, you'll be fine. Just shake it off. You don't just shake off clinical depression. You don't. Or bipolar life. You don't. You live with it, but you need therapy. And a lot of my kids who take therapy right now, my teens, are not receiving it except virtually. And that's not enough for some of them. It really isn't. Although it's helping. I really am in, deeply in favor of tele, telehealth and connecting. I am. But I do think we have to sort of be honest about the reality that telehealth might not necessarily work in a domestic violence scenario, right? The vast majority of people who are healthy, mentally healthy gun owners are not threatening to kids. But in a family with this domestic violence, that, that gun is an over-your-head threat. It is a, maybe I won't shoot you, but I might shoot your mom. It is a trauma sometimes people don't get how deep it is and how frightened kids are. And they'll put so many layers, they'll mask it so well. There'll be the kids that people can't get, oh, the teachers will say to me, that boy over there, you don't want to pay attention. He's, that's the one I want the most. I want that young man the most. <laughs> it, it breaks my heart when people can't see past these masks, this attitude. I am concerned about all levels at this point because every stage is crucial developmentally. But the ones I interact with the most are the 13 to 18 year olds, 13 to 19 year olds. And the upper level of those kids are taking a, a, a burden and a responsibility that others are not. They're taking risks. They're taking jobs in grocery stores where the possibility of being, or delivery boys or girls kind of a thing, where the possibility of being infected is real. And they're doing that because they're afraid for the loved ones that need the money. Teen parents are especially isolated and a good day. So this makes it harder. And then the domestic violence is not just, it's also dating violence for teens. It's mm -hmm. also that phenomena. And again, emotionally, developmentally, young people shouldn't have to carry that. I, it breaks my heart when I have young people say to me at the age of 11, I would like to buy this book, but I don't have the money to do it. And I, if I say, why don't I get it for you as a gift? Well, if you're going to spend that, can you give it to me for my mom because she doesn't have X? I mean, and people don't understand how many young people don't have food at home. You have to do home visits to see that. I've done so many home visits, I can't even count them. You go in a fridge and there's beer and yogurt or beer and mayonnaise or beer and something. And some of the data on ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, say that neglect is probably worse than blank out. If there's one big trauma, which isn't usually the way it is, but if there's one big trauma, abuse, trauma. It is easier to get past that than every day, every day, every day, the neglect and the negation of worth 
like I like my birthday. Um, my parents were married 17 years before I was born. I talk about this in my book too, but I, I, I love it. They would get up in the morning and go, this is the day you made us happy. And it wasn't that I got <laughs> money or presents. It was, that I got affirmation. Right. Mm-hmm. And I know kids who tell me that when they woke up on their birthdays, a parent will say, this is the day you ruined our lives. And self-esteem, my friend, can't be given in a bolus. It has to be dripped in mm-hmm. a little bit at a time and not feeling that steady worthiness means that you don't get it. Your self-concept, your self-worth is damaged before you even have a chance to make mistakes. Well, and I think that that slides, unfortunately, so beautifully into my next concern, which is, do you think we're going to see a rise in teen suicide? We know that every year we've seen, unfortunately, suicides by firearm in younger and younger people. But do you think we're going to see that? As a result of this pandemic? Yes. Yes. That's one of the reasons I'm Zooming so much. I think adults have to have their hands on this. The pulse of this has to be caring adults. And there's a lot of them out there. They need to have, they need to be on top of this. They need to, and, and that's really important for me to say this next part. Young people are very good at camouflage. So you can have a person who, are, I'm fine, I'm good, how are you? And, and inside they're breaking, but they don't always let that happen. Um, so yes, I, I hope I'm wrong. And I I think that that's the other thing we're hearing is that there's not, Americans already don't talk about suicide because we don't talk about death, but suicide in particular, we most assuredly do not talk about. Absolutely. And we certainly do not talk about the suicide of children and teens. Absolutely not. We just don't. Because we don't want to accept the fact that a child gets that desperate and the safety net that we're supposed to have erected around that child has failed. We don't want to think about that. We don't want to think about the responsibility of putting children's lives first. We don't want to do that because then we have to own that we're not doing a good job at this. We have to look in the mirror and say, our priority should be our children, not X, Y, Z, not politics. There's no debate to me. What do you do first? Do you take care of the kids? What do you prioritize? Children, their education, their health, their well-being, their mental stability. What do we do first as a country? We educate them. We take care of their health care. We make sure they're safe in their homes. We protect them from gun violence. That's all a no-brainer to me. That's not debatable to me. This whole pandemic has put out in the air things that people like me have been knowing about for many, many years, that we don't have equity in education, that we don't have equity in health care that a lot of our children fall through the cracks because we don't even know the cracks are there. We don't acknowledge them. We don't acknowledge that there's problems with children's lives um, and teen lives. It's made it glaringly obvious that some of us have more than others. It's made privilege in our faces unless people are totally blind. Shelter in place only works if you have a place to stay. I can do without stuff. You know, I just turned 70. If I don't have bread in the house, I don't have to have bread in the house, right? But if I have a five-year-old, I'm going to do what I can to get that bread. And what's scary, I think, to some adults, I'm not one of them, is the reality that there's not confidence in our society not breaking down. Yeah, I think that's the the overarching fear. Right. So I, I, I need, I think we need FDR type person. You know, fireside chats. My mother used to tell me that my grandfather called him the good man, the good man Franklin in Italian, the Bahum or something like that, Franklin. We have nothing to fear but fear ourselves. We need somebody to say we can do this as a as a group, and I think that's happening locally. Well, on on that note of you know being the support that we should be, 
because I've, I've talked to so many now grassroots organizations and people who have continued either their violence interrupter work ending gun violence uninterrupted and then have been like, all right, so we're going to stop gun violence, but we're also going to feed people. You know, I, I've talked to so many people who are out there risking themselves uh, to, to do this valuable work. What can some of our listeners be doing to support the teens in their life, to support just the people around them if they're worried about someone? Absolutely. Let's start with the young people because that's my that's my place. So I don't care if you're directly related to a young person. You could be a neighbor. You could be an aunt. You could be a friend of a parent. Reach out to them. They may reject you. They're suspicious. You have to earn trust with teens. And if you've never offered support to a 15-year-old, the first time you do it, they're not going to go, oh, thanks. That's exactly what I needed. So when I say reach out, I mean be persistent. But be creative. Send something. Find yourself a way to connect. If it's texting, um, say things like, I'm here. Don't say how you're doing necessarily because they're going to say, I'm fine and I'm good. They're not going to give you the deep stuff, but say, everybody's having a hard time with this. I am. I'm guessing you are too. If you ever want to talk, I'm right here. And then the next day say, remember what we talked about yesterday? I'm still here. Um, And when you get one who talks with you, even if it's little beginnings, listen to hear, not just listen. Be silent. Silence is a wonderful gift. And hear what they're telling you. Face-to-face is much better. But if you can Zoom or do FaceTime or any of the wonderful things that we have technologically, you can read body language. So that's how I would reach out to a teen. In terms of anyone else, I like social media. I think it has this absolutely negative side. But if you can connect on something like Facebook, which is, a, uh, or sh- I don't do Snapchat. I've told the kids I'm too old for Snapchat. I'm not going there. And they laugh at me. No TikToks? No or- <laughs> TikToks, although they want me to make them. Although hilarious. <laughs> they do make a TikTok. I'm like, no. Um, but connecting with them, Instagram, whatever way you can connect with them. What, what I'm hearing from you then is just, we got to be better at connecting. Oh, and, it's all about connection. It's all about connection, my friend. It's all about connection any way you can. And we don't connect with people who don't trust us. They won't connect back. And in order to trust, a teen has to see that you're human. So you need to be able to be vulnerable with them. People need to be honest with kids. If you say to kids, this is going to be over by Easter, this is going to be over by April 30th, this is going to be over by the end of May, and then it isn't. They just feel like you cheated them. You lied to them. I have said from the very beginning, I don't know when it's going. You know, and I don't think any of us do really at the moment, which is, which is scary, but we've got to connect. We, we've got to talk about hard things and we need to be smart about guns. Mary Jo, thank you so much for, for coming on today and for helping to facilitate at least the beginning of this talk. It was an absolute joy. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. You. Bye. Bye. Looking for more gun violence prevention content? Try Audible. Audible is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible content includes more than 250,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products with free apps for every type of phone and device. So you can access your books anytime, anywhere, right from your smartphone. Right now, I'm listening to Gunfight by Adam Winkler, so I can spend this time learning more about the District of Columbia v. Heller case. Brady listeners can get a special 30-day trial and free audiobook by going to www.audible.com slash Brady at home. That's slash Brady at home. Thanks for listening. As always, Brady's life-saving work in Congress, the courts, and communities across the country is made possible thanks to you. 
For more information on Brady or how to get involved in the fight against gun violence, please like and subscribe to the podcast, get in touch with us at bradyunited.org or on social at Brady Buzz. Be brave and remember, take action, not sides. <laughs> <laughs>